0: Hi, and thanks for tuning in to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week, we feature an interesting, thought-provoking and clinically relevant conversation to enhance your speech pathology practice. Let's hear from this week's contributors.
1: Hi, and welcome to this week's Speak Up conversation. I'm Laura Kerr, Speech Pathology Australia's Senior Advisor, Mental Health and Trauma, And I'm recording today from the lands of the Bunurong people of the southeastern Kulin Nation. As a mental health speech pathologist, I have spent many years supporting individuals to meet their social communication goals. Like many speech pathologists out there, I've been reflecting on my practice in the light of the neurodiversity movement, and I'm privileged to be speaking with Kate Mulheron today about the experience of moving into neurodiversity-affirming practice. I met Kate at the NDIS and Mental Health Conference earlier this year when she helped out um, at the Speech Pathology Australia exhibition stand. We got talking about trauma-informed practice and how this benefits everyone, especially those who are neurodivergent. Kate's deep connection with her neurodivergent clients has led her to advocate for a shift to inclusive and affirming practices across her workplaces in private practice, as well as for a school for specific purposes, with an emphasis on teen mental health. Her passionate interest in the area eventually led to her own realisation she has been a high-masking autistic woman this whole time, and she uses her lived experience to drive her advocacy. Kate has just recently opened her own practice, Perspectives Speech Therapy, which has a strong focus on neurodiversity inclusion and support for kids, teens and adults who are looking to learn about their own neurodivergence. You can find her at perspective speech. That's p e r s p e c t i v e s s p e e c h.com. Welcome Kate.
0: Hi, Laura. Thank you very much for having me. Um, I'm speaking to you from Bidjigal land um, and really happy to be here. Thank you.
1: Terrific. Okay, so just to get us started um, and for those not as familiar with this topic, uh, can you just um, explain the difference between neurodiverse and neurodivergent?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, neurodiverse and neurodiversity refers to this idea that the world is full of people with different types of brains and each of those different types of brains brings like experiences and perspectives that lead to a richer world essentially. So it's the diversity of the brains that makes the, the world such a magical place but um, an individual person can't really be diverse because they are only one brain. Neurodivergence is a word that refers to a type of brain that differs from the norm and that has its own set of experiences that has like that impacts on the person over time by being a minority essentially and having the society around them Make them think that one brain is superior than the other brains. A neurodivergent brain is a specific person who might have um, an autistic brain or an ADHD brain or another kind of neurodivergence.
1: Thank you for explaining that, Kate. So, what is meant by the term ableist and what are some examples of ableist practices?
0: Yeah, essentially, ableism is the idea that having a neurotypical or like a non-disabled take on the world is the way that a person is supposed to be and that disabled people or neurodivergent people, if you prefer that, um, are should try to live up to being neurotypical and able-bodied and they should aspire to change themselves so that they can reach these Um, so that they can reach these expectations. And so in speech therapy, that could look like um, having therapies that perpetuate neurotypical social skills. So it could be teaching little kids how they're supposed to play with their toys or teaching people about basically how to mask, which in the neurodiversity affirming movement, we know masking is when you are trying to hide your neurodivergence so that you can pass as a neurotypical person in society. Um, But the thing that happens with those types of therapies and those types of expectations on neurodivergent people is that they're never going to be neurotypical. They are always going to be neurodivergent and that's as it should be in my opinion Um, so when you are trying to teach them all of these skills, what you're really trying, what you're really teaching them to do is to hide their true self, which takes a lot of effort and has mental health implications because it it leads to this feeling of shame around being your true self and you have to hide your true true self out of, um, shame essentially. And then that turns into a spiral of not being able to, be your true self, sometimes it can lead to forgetting who your real self would even be underneath all of the masking. Um, So when we talk about ableist practices, it's that um, examples might be um, if a kid is trying to learn to read and they would enjoy stories and you think that learning to read would be a good goal for them but they just can't sit at a table um, and they don't really like adult-led activities maybe that makes them feel really anxious or maybe it makes them feel not listened to or invalidated but a lot of like in my experience I spent ages trying to get my kids to sit at a table so I could teach them to read and then Ever since I've been trying to unlearn this, I've been able to teach these kids to read on the floor, like by following their lead, by following their interests, by getting the words that I want them to read into a game. And it's completely changed the way the practice looks and it has led to way better outcomes for their reading as well as less distress in the sessions like they're not trying to sit at a table and make themselves uncomfortable for my sake anymore and yeah they are they're not having to put themselves out completely but they're still managing to meet their goals which is really lovely.
1: Perfect thank you. So uh, in contrast to ableist practice what is neurodiversity affirming practice?
0: So neurodiversity affirming practice is a type of like a philosophy that underlies people's therapies or um, it's the same with teaching and, and even parenting is that they're not trying to change the neurotype of the person. They're not trying to make their client or their child that they're working with into something that they're not. And they are respecting and validating and making sure that the kid or the person that they're working with always knows that their lived experience is probably like their lived experience is accurate, that their needs are valid, that they have insights that are valuable to the world rather than having people be subtly reinforced with this idea that they aren't good enough and they need to change what can tend to happen with people who are told um, that the majority rules approach is accurate is that they can start to doubt their own experiences they can start to doubt their own abilities and they start to doubt the validity of their life, essentially. For example, if a little kid is continually told, oh, it's not that loud, oh, it's not that loud, then the person who legitimately is hearing something that is too loud for them starts to think to themselves, like, is it just me? Like, if they say it's not too loud, I guess it's not too loud. But it is, but having that mismatch can be really damaging to people's mental health because then they can't trust their own experiences anymore, and they can't trust that they are um, that they know what's best for themselves. They can't trust that they can yeah, they can't trust their own senses. And that is the kind of thing that comes through in um, non-neurodiversity affirming therapies is that we can accidentally perpetuate things like that that lead to the poor mental health outcomes for people who aren't able to then um, advocate for themselves because they don't trust that what they're advocating for is legitimate and it becomes this whole cycle, which is what leads to the, uh, one of the things that leads to the poor mental health outcomes for neurodivergent people and that's why I think it's really important that we are as a community talking so much about neurodiversity affirming practice because it's one of the things that's going to stop this cycle for neurodivergent people and I just think that's really important.
1: Mm, Absolutely. So why are speech therapists starting to shift away from ableist practice and towards being neurodiversity affirming?
0: There are a few reasons. I think the main one just comes down to unlearning a lot of the um, assumptions that we have been taught over many years and that research is still perpetuating to a certain extent about the abilities and the needs of neurodivergent people. Um, But on a practical level, um, moving towards a neurodiversity affirming approach in your sessions can lead to things like um, clients getting less anxious in sessions and getting less dysregulated in the moment, which is makes for a much more pleasant session. It makes for the kids having a more pleasant life. And it also helps them meet their learning goals because kids can't really learn when they're scared. So if we're trying to scare people or shame them into doing the activities that don't align with them then we're not actually able to get the best therapy outcomes for them Um, and that leads to missing valuable learning opportunities as well and then it just comes back to yeah that respect teaching clients that they are wrong and that they need to do something else in order to be right as a person whereas as a person you can't be wrong you're a person so um that is really important and we as um close, like trusted adults that form close relationships with these people are in a really powerful position to course correct some of the messaging that they're already getting and also to not contribute to the messaging that they're already getting. So we can be such an empowering force in these people's lives because of our position as speech therapists. Um so that's, I think, the underlying reason why the community is starting to shift towards a more neurodiversity affirming practice. It all really just comes down to respect and trying to be, like, the kindest version of ourselves and have the best therapy outcomes for our clients.
1: Mm, lovely. I loved how you you described that, the kindest version of ourselves. So what sort of thoughts uh, might a speech pathologist have? or feelings they might experience when transitioning to neurodiversity-affirming practice? And how might they navigate this?
0: That's Yeah, the reason I sort of approached you, Laura, with this idea for a podcast is because this is what I went through when I first went from my old way of doing therapy, which was more ableist, it was more adult-led, it was like not working with my client's brains. Um, I went through a few feelings, and I've talked to multiple colleagues who have all kind of said along the same things um, that some of these feelings are basically barriers to them making the shift over. So one of the feelings that really is stopping the people that I've spoken to at the very least, um, is that feeling of vulnerability where we have learned speech therapy. We learned in um, university and then years of experience of how to control a room, how to get a kid to do what you want. Sorry, I work in pediatrics, but I'm sure clients of all ages. But um, we feel experienced and we feel in control and we feel like we know what we're doing. And then you find out, oh, you should be doing something else. And then you lose that sense of I know what I'm doing you have to feel that discomfort of flying by the seat of your pants for a little while and trying new things and hoping it goes okay um when especially when the um When the session is more child-led, they often do end up being less planned. A lot of people feel the most in control when they've planned their sessions, they've planned their activities, they know exactly how it's going to go because they're going to make it go that way. Um, So then when we are being child-led, it could go in a completely different direction. Um, When you know your real goal, like you know the underlying goal that you're really trying to get through, then it doesn't matter as much what the activity is, but that is a risk, like it feels really risky to go into a session without having planned out every activity that you're doing um, and having to be flexible like that. Um, In my experience, so I always tried to start small if I was um going from a session where I was like I know exactly what I'm doing I've worked with this person like I know this type of session well then I might just start with one activity that I don't plan and sort of see where it goes and then the what I believe will happen for you anyone that tries this is that you will learn over time how beautiful that session can be like even if it starts with one activity, the activity might go in a direction that you didn't want, but then you'll get to see the kid in their element, or sorry, the client in their element and you'll be able to see how differently they can work when you do let them go along with their own ideas for a while. So I always um, suggest starting small. And then over time, I hope and believe that you would feel a new kind of confidence, which comes from knowing that you can be flexible. So you can have confidence from knowing that your session is going to go the way you think it's going to go. But the confidence that I personally feel from knowing that it doesn't matter how the Session goes. It's going to be good because I know my goal and I know that I have the ability to be flexible and to uh, go with the flow. No matter what, does the kid come in with a special interest that it's all they want to think about that day, or does the kid come in in a mood that isn't their normal mood? So I haven't sort of planned for it. No matter how they present when they get to the clinic, I am confident that I can finagle it into a good speech therapy session. And that's a type of confidence that I definitely didn't have before when I wasn't working in this way. Um one of the things that can feel like a barrier is the feeling of like it's sort of about control, but authority is probably a better word. Feeling like you're the authority. They've come to you. You are the grown up, and they are the child. If you're working with a child. Um, Whereas what I've found since becoming essentially more vulnerable in my sessions, I've started talking about my own difficulties more within reason. Um, I've started to admit to the parents, like this is something new that I'm trying. Can we give it a go? And, the true connection that you have through the vulnerability and through being deep in a moment with a client and their families is a type of controlling the session in itself. Like the session will go well because you will have that true buy-in and people will be happy to go with you because they feel connected and respected. And that is one of the things that for me made me feel like, oh, I might lose some of my authority if I stop being a bit, I am the speech therapist and you are the client. um, But it has been the opposite. And I think that's been really lovely as well. And then it also just empowers the client so much to know that you are listening to them and you care about what they're saying. That's the best positive feedback that they could possibly get about their communication is that it was listened to. And that is perpetuating this idea that not only can they communicate, but they should communicate. It's worth communicating. Um, And that's where that mental health stuff comes in of a lot of the time when people aren't self-advocating. Some of it is because they don't know what to say. They don't know how to do it. They don't know exactly how to play it. But a lot of it is because they're used to not doing it. They're used to not being listened to. They're used to being invalidated when they try so they don't continue to try and that's where we can be like such a positive change um and then part of like under the whole vulnerability umbrella of uncomfortable feelings the last one that i personally experienced and again maybe you have felt the same um is having to balance the parents expectations against your new value system and like the way you want to do the therapy Um, because parents do come in with like I want my kid to be the best they can be which for some people means I want them to seem neurotypical I want them to thrive but they don't really know what thriving might look like for a neurodivergent person so you have to then balance the parent's expectation with your clinical expertise and like your decision that neurodiversity affirming practice is going to have the best outcomes for the client. So that is, it's tricky. It involves um, shifting the goals a little bit from just working with the client about neurodiversity. Like I, I talk a lot about neurodiversity education to the clients, but then also to their parents as well. It does involve sometimes slowly sometimes they're on board straight away but often slowly dripping in this idea of like let's try a different way let's go slow let's do it as an experiment I often (laughs) frame it that way so that the parents just get on board a little bit and then like I said earlier they'll see how great their kid can be when we are like following the child's brain essentially um And then by doing that, we get the buy-in from the parent and it will take a while sometimes. But um, I think that standing up to parents a little bit more is also something that empowers me. It's like a good cycle of um, I'm no longer going to do goals that make me feel uncomfortable because I don't. I don't think that they're the right goals for the child. And being able to calmly explain to the parent why I'm going to do that, why I'm not going to do that, sorry, is going to increase the parent's respect for the speech therapist over time. And it's just that positive cycle that we can be a part of. So that's the first feeling that I've discussed with quite a few of my colleagues is that feeling of vulnerability. Yeah,
1: um, just, I'm just reflecting on, thank you for all of that, the bit, um, you know, about the confidence of, of speech pathologists and thinking, oh, what am I going to do now? And, oh, going with the flow, it's a little bit scary. Mm-hmm. I don't really know what I'm doing. And I guess it, it makes me wonder if it's sort of less about what you do in the session and more about how you are with mm-hmm. the with the client. And it's sort of this set of values or principles that you bring with you and you think, okay, I want to be kind, I want to be accepting, I want to be child-led, I want to give them ample time to talk, I want them to feel listened to. And so then by keeping those principles in mind, it it can sort of take the pressure off, can't it? And so no matter what happens, you think, oh, as long as I'm being this Mm -hmm. type of therapist that I want to be, that will naturally lead to these sort of positive neurodiversity affirming outcomes. Um, and this is, you know I sort of think of this because you know we're developing some guidelines around trauma-informed practice at the moment. and you know the the take-home message really, um, hopefully will be about you know it's about the principles and the values and and what you do is sort of less important than how you actually are or, or what yeah. you bring to these. the experience that you bring. To yeah. the, the people that For you're sure. working with. I
0: love the way mm. you phrase that. It's not about what you do, it's about the way you are. Um is a beautiful way to summarize that mm. because um, the activities are gonna look different, or like maybe you won't get as many, as many reps as you would have, like if you were doing like a token economy kind of thing, but you have done more as a person just by being there in the moment with your client um, appreciating them showing them how much you respect them and care about them that is always a side goal <laughs> in the therapy sessions it's always there um, that's a really lovely way to say it I think that it really comes across when people just like neurodivergent people so when a uh, neurodivergent child is speaking to an adult and they say something unexpected instead of going, what? And trying to finagle it into being what is expected and try to figure out what they might mean. Just go with it. What they said was probably what they meant and it will probably lead you somewhere really interesting and insightful about the person's thought processes. And you can tell when someone enjoys that process and for the neurodivergent person, having their thought process be just enjoyed in the session is invaluable. It's so lovely. It's such a good like side lesson. In addition to clarity of communication, it's an, it's a lesson in the way you think is delightful and you should do more of it. It's, yeah, it's really important. Um, My kids, I tend to work with quite a few teenagers now, so they are and even younger kids, but the really deep conversations I've had recently have been with teenagers and they know. They know when they are being managed and they know when they're being appreciated. And I love the way you said, yeah, it's not about what you do, it's about how you are. They will pick up on that like 100% and that's beautiful. I love that about (laughs) the ability to connect with people in speech therapy sessions is my favourite thing about the entire profession. So, yeah, love it. And we
1: also know, of course, that that, you know, collection and um, the connection and relationship is the foundation for safety as well, isn't it, and feeling Mm -hmm. safe. And a kid's not going to be able to engage in those high-level sort of therapy tasks if they're not feeling safe and connected to you. So. Yes, it all it ties in yeah, all very nicely. it all it all yeah, comes together yeah. to be that being with, effective. as to the doing. Yeah. Yes. yeah, yeah, and delighting in for yeah. sort of new circle of security language. Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: Um, so, what are some other feelings that our speech pathologists might experience when, you know, um, thinking about their practice and and how they might like to transition into something that's more neurodiversity affirming?
0: Yeah, the next one that definitely happened for me is guilt. Um when before I learned about all this neurodiversity affirming practice language and um the sort of practical tips and that kind of thing, I already had a pretty firm feeling of discomfort when I was trying to get a neurodivergent person to do something that they weren't comfortable with. Um, I was already feeling a lot of cognitive dissonance that I was shoving down because I thought, this is what you're supposed to do. This is what we were taught in uni. This is what um, has worked. That's got air quotes for <laughs> people. Um, this is what has worked in the past. This is how I have to be to meet the kids' goals. Um, so, The years that I was doing that, I wasn't comfortable. The kids weren't comfortable, um, but it was what you are told to do. It's what you are trained to do and it's what society tells you is the most helpful thing for disabled people. Um, So when I finally learned all of this language around neurodivergence and neurodiversity and Um, that there was another way that you could still be an effective speech therapist. I did put it off for a little while because to admit that I like to admit that this new way could be kinder and better would mean admitting to myself that what I had been doing previously probably was harmful and it wasn't the most pleasant (laughs) for the people in the situation. Um, because kids do get dysregulated a lot more easily in those types of sessions. Um, and they, like, I, I can't, I was trying to think the other day, I can't even remember the last time a client got truly dysregulated and upset in one of my sessions because I just wouldn't think to put them in those situations anymore. But back when I was first learning about this, I was a bit paralyzed by the guilt that I felt that I had previously put someone in a situation where they were so uncomfortable that they cried. And that feeling of discomfort led me to do that for an extra, at least a few months before I was, before I, I guess I had the space for myself and I had the time to process what it meant for me to go, actually, I don't want to keep doing this. Then I had to process that I probably had you know, done harm in the past um, so the things that sort of helped me with that and that um, I think that might be helpful for other people going through this are that we remind ourselves that we do our best with the information that we have at the time, that we, in the same way, we always meet clients where they're at. We meet ourselves where we're at. Like, look at the societal reasons that you ended up in a position where you might have been doing speech therapy in a way that wasn't the kindest. Um, It's a systemic issue. Um, The overarching societal stigmas, the research that is being put out, the way that we're still taught to um, have adult-led sessions in professional development and in uni, um, all of this perpetuates that mindset that leads to us thinking that we're doing the right thing when we are having adult-led therapy sessions and um, ableist therapies, essentially. Um, that's why we just have to be really kind to ourselves in this process and know that an individual person within a problematic system is not the problem because you were doing your best with the information you had at the time. And that's what I kept having to tell myself. Um, and then that self-forgiveness is, is what led me to be able to try new things and then I got to see the benefits of that and it all sort of spiraled positively from there. Um, One of the feelings that I did feel around guilt was defensiveness. So a little bit of if someone tried to tell me that I wasn't being a good speech therapist, I would immediately clam up. I would try to, you know, we try to be reflective all the time, but It's hard to hear that feedback, Um, but I think that the real strength is in not letting the unpleasant feelings stop you from moving to something that would lead to less cognitive dissonance for you in addition to nicer sessions for the kids. You don't have to sit with as much discomfort in the future and knowing that that feeling is available to you to take where you get to still have your neurodivergent clients meet their goals but you don't have to feel like you've pressured them or anything like that is available to you and that's just like knowing that that is an option but you do have to sort of go through a little bit of discomfort to get there um so yeah i hope that some of these self-forgiveness strategies or at least knowing that you're not alone can help like, obviously, I have a bit of an agenda in that I would love to help you to get to a point where you can be more neurodiversity affirming, but don't beat yourself up. If any listeners out there are beating themselves up, we've all been there and it's not our fault that we've all been there. It's it's part of a bigger system. Um, The other thing about the discomfort from the confronting information and the guilt is that I needed that to propel my action um, because when I didn't feel guilty enough, I was able to keep going with the um, ableist speech therapy practices. But once I got to that point of feeling a bit too guilty to continue, that's when the shift started. And in my opinion, it was a very positive shift. I much, much, much prefer my sessions now and I feel a lot better about them. Um I am very confident that their kids are having better outcomes. So I think that the confronting feeling and the discomfort is not pleasant, but it can be used for a positive purpose. Thinking about the cognitive dissonance that is often felt when we are doing ableist practices, but um, so much of it comes back to a lot of speeches tend to be perfectionists. We're trying to do such a good job. And then that's one of the self-forgiveness strategies, I think, is knowing where I come from with my need to do a good job. When I was doing those ableist speech therapies, I was feeling pressure from the parents. I was feeling pressure from my boss to do a good job. I was feeling the ghosts of my university lecturers who I wanted to think that I was a good speech therapist. Um, So there's a lot of pressure to do a good job and then combining what you have been told a good job is with your internal pressure to do a good job. Of course, that leads you to do the ableist therapy practices that you have been told to do. So if you are feeling that way then know that you're not alone but also know that you're not a bad person for doing ableist therapy practices because I felt like I was and I don't know if anyone else feels that way but if you do like I hope that at least one person today I can tell you that you're not but I when I first learned about um, the damage that we can do as speech therapists who are perpetuating ableist agendas through our therapies and teaching people to mask and teaching people that they have to make themselves uncomfortable in order to please others then I felt like a monster (laughs) when I first read all of that um there are some really effective pieces of writing out there about the mental health impacts of that and it's not pleasant but um like yeah, I'm just trying to get across the idea that if you're feeling that way, you're not alone and it's not your fault. And I hope that it doesn't stop you from um, pursuing more neurodiversity affirming practices because you know there's something on the other side of that feeling and it is delightful.
1: Mm. So you've talked about vulnerability, guilt. What's something else speeches might feel?
0: Yeah. The last one that I thought of is hopelessness. So the feeling when you know what you're doing and you have a whole set of practices and then you know you learn that you have to stop what you're doing but you don't know what it looks like to do something else. So I was paralyzed by that feeling of like stop what you're doing, you can't do that, but I didn't know what it looked like to do something else and that's where we are in such a like a new age of the amount of resources that are out there now has blown up in the last few years, which we're so lucky for because now there are um, places where we can see examples of what it would look like. There's a fantastic Facebook group, um, the Australian Speech is Discussing Neurodiversity Affirming Practice Facebook group. Um, You can post a question like, here's what I'm currently doing what do I do? And people will give non-judgmental answers um, because it's really obvious when people are trying to learn and trying to do better. So now there are people available and they're making themselves available, including me. <laughs> like I, I try to make myself available to anyone who is trying to incorporate neurodiversity affirming practice in a way that doesn't induce guilt and meets people where they're at because that's amazing. It's brave and it's great to do that um so there's a facebook group there's a bunch of organizations out there that are providing free resources um the neuro Wild, um instagram account and they have a teachers pay teachers account i believe as well and adina levy has courses on this um There are resources from, for example, Autism Level Up has some free resources. There's a podcast, the Two Side of the Spectrum podcast is fantastic. Um, And then just recently, SPA put out a module on neurodiversity affirming practice, which I found really interesting. Like, I've read a lot of stuff about neurodiversity. And then when I was reading that SPA module, I learned stuff that I didn't even know yet. And I was, yeah, it was really cool. So... That feeling of hopelessness, I hope having – Some more resources available will stop you from feeling that way. But again, I would just advise starting small if there's one client that you think that you might try something new with um, or there's one thing that you want to learn about. So you could um, do a little bit of professional learning in sensory regulation, speak to an OT and all the two sides of the spectrum podcast is great for this as well. So just learn a little bit about it and think like, how can I incorporate this into my sessions, even if I keep everything else the same for now? Um, or one really important thing is to learn about the double empathy problem, which in a nutshell is the idea that, well, it's a, it's a studied phenomenon where, um, there was a research study that neurotypical people speaking to each other had fairly like minimal communication breakdowns, but then autistic people also speaking to each other had fairly minimal communication breakdowns. And Within group communication is fine for both groups, but between group communication is when we start to have the communication breakdowns and it tends to fall on the autistic people to repair them and to feel responsible for them. So the double empathy problem is that it's actually double empathy. It's both people's responsibility to meet in the middle, to learn about each other. So learn about the double empathy problem. There's quite a few resources out there. Um, learn about neurodivergent social communication styles. They can be delightful. Like if you sit in on a conversation with two autistic people talking to each other, it is just fun. It'll go in directions that you don't expect it to go. They might talk over each other, but they're not upset about it. Um, It's just delightful. So learn about neurodivergent social communication styles um, and then Try to make sure that whatever you are consuming comes from neurodivergent people. There's a hashtag, the actually autistic hashtag, on Instagram. I'm sure it's on other social media as well. But it's the idea of that nothing about us without us. It's about um, learning about the internal experience. A lot of the time, um, neurodivergent, neurodivergence in general is defined based on the external characteristics but it's such a rich internal experience and the more you can learn about the internal experience of being neurodivergent you can just naturally engage with those concepts in sessions with your clients and it will come more naturally the more you learn so um if you are feeling a little bit of hopelessness where you're like okay i'm not allowed to do anything that i used to do but what do i do um I hope that some of these resources can be
1: helpful. It's just something that sort of um, struck me during our conversation at the the NDIS conference was how you were saying that masking isn't always a bad thing, like in terms of as long as it is... um, as long as say the neurodivergent person is choosing to use it because it's going to serve them in certain Mm. situations. I just wonder if you could say something, This sort of ties into this double empathy problem, learning about each other's communication styles. Um, and you know, it it can help to to know about each other's, um, because then you can sort of slip into and out of these communication styles, depending on who you're talking with. um, and so for, say, an autistic person, if they're familiar with neurotypical um, behaviours, then if they feel like they want to, um, you know, sort of put those on because it's yeah. going to serve them in that moment and they feel good about it, yeah, um, then that's okay. Just like a neurotypical person might, you know, try and lean into the neurodivergent <laughs> communication a bit. Yeah, it,
0: for sure. It, I don't think I... I think that you articulated that perfectly because we did discuss that at the NDIS conference Yeah, and I do frequently mask and I'm very good at it to be fair because I did it for 30 years um, without knowing what I was doing but yeah the whole time that so I guess where the mental health impacts and the pressure the external pressure comes in is that masking the way it currently what like masking the way we're taught to do it externally is basically a shame response. It comes from feeling like this is what you have to do to be acceptable. Um, For me, it came in the form of a – in a monologue of like, I was listening to my friend tell a story in a group and I was trying to listen. She was, she got engaged. It was like such a beautiful story. But the whole time, all I was thinking was like, she made a joke, you a laugh, but not too loud because otherwise you can bring your attention to yourself. And like um, everyone, this is a quite part of the story. So you should stand back a little bit to like acknowledge that, you know, that it's quite part of the story. So I was listening to this whole beautiful story about my friend getting engaged and literally all I could think about was how I was presenting myself and that was about the time that I realized I was autistic um so it really it was distracting it was upsetting it was worrying because I knew that I had to do it right or else um and I don't feel that way anymore now I sometimes hear my internal monologue being like um you know what to do like you could you could do that what this person's expecting and if I choose to do it um they will be more receptive to my advocacy um if you choose to do it you can avoid a boring conversation with someone at the shops that you don't feel like talking to about why you're um not looking at them or like um you can choose to mask in a safe way I believe occasionally but where it becomes important for like clinical knowledge is that um you have to have a positive autistic self-identity in order to be able to choose when you do this because even if you know what to do and you're trying to unmask which unmasking is really difficult like you still slip into it occasionally um but as long as you have internalised ableism and internalised shame around being neurodivergent, then is it ever safe to mask? Like it is, it's a debate. Um, there are some autistic advocates who don't, um, they they say never teach any so, uh, neurotypical social communication of any kind. Autistic people should be who they are and we should always accept them. Um, and that is coming from a place of really Knowing the mental health outcomes for people who do feel the shame enough to mask, I personally don't feel that strong. Like I, I do teach some neurotypical social skills occasionally because I know how I love my life and I know that masking has contributed to a lot of the opportunities that I have. Um, but so I do teach. Some neurotypical social skills, but anyone who is going to learn neurotypical social skills from me also has to listen to my relentless positivity about their autistic traits. And they also have to listen to me reminding them constantly that it's not an internal skill that they have to have to be valid, it's an external skill that they can choose to have the same way I have the skill, I know how to use a power drill. Um, and I can power drill when I need to if I need to put a hole in my wall I can pick up my drill I can do it but my identity is not related to my ability to use a power drill it's just something that I can do when it's handy for me Um, and I can do that now because of therapy and because of a positive autistic autistic self-identity like fairly high confidence at this point in my life but It was not always that way. And for the people that we're seeing, it's probably not that way at all because that's why they're in speech therapy. So there's debates, like, there's definitely levels to do it. But I think that the main thing that comes across, like you say, it's not about what you do, like, do you teach neurotypical social skills or not? It's about how you are. Are you telling people that they need to? Be more neurotypical with your actions, with your responses, with just the way you are in the room with them. Or are you telling them that they're fantastic the way they are, but if they want to learn this extra skill, you can show them how it would work and they can choose what they want to do with it. They get to choose when they want to use it. They get to choose when it's worth it to them, they need to know the pros and cons. They need to know that it will be tiring, like it's physically tiring to mask. Um, They need to know that it will reduce the authenticity of their communication, but some communications don't deserve authenticity. Um, They don't need authenticity if it's just a chat with someone you don't care about enough. So they need to know the pros and cons so that they can choose when to do it, but it all has to sit on top of a positive autistic or neurodivergent self-identity and all of that sits on top of all the other stuff that we've talked about um, in the speech therapy sessions. So I hope that, I mean, that's my take on it, um, but everyone, like all autistic people will have a different level of what they tolerate and uh, in terms of teaching neurotypical social skills and again, it just comes down to, some people can teach them because it comes across that they love autistic people and some people shouldn't teach them because it does not come across that they love autistic people and that is something you can't really teach it has to come from within but coming from within again will come from taking these actions that we've talked about
1: Mm, amazing thank you kate
0: if anyone is feeling stuck, I'm happy to chat, honestly. Like I really love talking about this stuff and I think it's important. I think that anyone that is taking steps to make themselves uncomfortable for the sake of making the world, in my opinion, a better place, a more diverse place, for the sake of making the clients and the people in their lives um, feel safe and validated, like that's amazing and i respect that so much and it is uncomfortable but i think that people that make themselves uncomfortable for a good cause are the people that i want in my life like that's just amazing traits so well done to anyone that is doing it um i hope some of this stuff has helped in some way on your journey
1: Mm. thank you so much kate Um, If you missed any of that, you can refer to the show notes for further information. Um, We'll make sure sort of the links Kate has mentioned are in there as well as anything else uh, that might be useful. Kate, thank you for coming in today. It's been a real pleasure and privilege to to chat to you and thank you to our listeners as well for, for joining us. Please tune in again next Wednesday for another Speak Up Conversation.
0: We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Please be sure to subscribe or follow the podcast and share it with your colleagues. You can also visit us at speechpathologyaustralia.org.au. Thanks for listening and bye for now.